over the last uh, 10 years, actually on January 1st, uh, 2013, I left the U.S. Uh, to embark on what I thought would be a one-year trip uh, to teach English in South Korea. Uh, and since that time, I've still been going strong teaching abroad in, in South Korea, teaching in Poland. Uh, I did a global MBA program. Um, I was a scuba dive instructor in Thailand. I started an online business. Uh, was in China for these trade fairs. And during these whole 10 years, I kept meeting interesting people from around the world uh, who had these crazy stories, whether they were living on a small island in, 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 in Thailand for the last 10, 15 years, or they just moved to, to China to start some kind of consulting business. And so meeting all these people, I thought this fascinating that they were doing these crazy things, um, you know, embarking on different journeys, uh, kind of throwing themselves out there into the world while, uh, you know, the, the traditional path here in the U.S. Uh, was everyone just gets their nine to five, which is what I was doing for a while. While. And so I really wanted to share these stories um, with my podcast. And so um, one of the first things I, 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 I see uh, from, from people is there's kind of some inspiration. There's something that they, they really want to do, some kind of voice in the back of their head. Maybe they see a video online. Maybe uh, they overhear someone talking about something cool. But there's a voice back of their head that say, hey, I really want to try this or, hey, I really want to see this or, hey, I really want to leave my comfort zone. Um, and it's, it's, it's finally coming to terms with, with saying, okay, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and embark on this journey. But with that comes a massive, massive amounts of fear um, because you're stepping outside of your comfort zone. Uh, even in my own uh, personal story, when I left for South Korea, uh, I remember that what happened for me was I, I did it. I, I signed up to teach six months in advance and I told my friends and everyone's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. You know, Gangnam Style just came out and I was like, oh, it's going to be so great to live in Korea. But a month before, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> I know nothing about South Korea. I have no idea what the weather is like. I have no idea even where on the map where it is, which is kind of crazy to think about <laughs> now. Um, and I didn't know anything about it. And it's when, when panic struck. But it, I think it was because I had done it. Uh, one, one thing I have found, at least personally for me, is when I want to do something that kind of seems like um, a little bit, let's say, kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. If I book it in advance, three, six, nine months in advance, uh, then it doesn't become like I don't think about it so much. And then all of a sudden it happens and I have to go through the, through the motion. So I kind of commit myself to it in advance as a way to kind of get over that fear. Is that kind um, of a tip that you would say to people that they should just put it in their damn calendar and just say, hey, dude, put it in? Absolutely. Like for me, if I said, hey, I'm going to go teach in, in Korea in two weeks, uh, I would freak out. I would never do it. I would say, no way. I don't know anything about it. But since I put it off in my head uh, six months in advance, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. And then when it finally starts coming time, to dump, you have to start actually planning things out and seeing where things go. Um, so that's kind of one thing, one strategy I use if there's things I want to do. Same with, for example, I started really getting into endurance races, uh, marathons. Sign up for it. Like it's in five, six months. I just finished the Chicago Marathon this Sunday, um, and 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 all of a sudden you're like, ah, it's not so bad. Marathon will be fun. But on Sunday, on mile 22, I was like, never again am I doing this ever again. So that's kind of one trick. One trick I use uh, is to kind of just things that I really want to do. I'll write them down, um, and I'll just kind of put them in my calendar and kind of commit myself to it in advance. And then and then it'll kind of start coming up. So I have to plan for it. Um, but, another but, th strategy oh, for, yeah, go ahead. Hold on. But a lot of people are procrastinators. And so mm -hmm. is that strategy of, you know, let's say I want to do a marathon or I want to go to Tahiti in six months. I mean, a lot of people will po postpone things until last minute. So that may not work for them. What do you think? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's one thing as well. I think the other thing I do, uh, which I don't know if is a good idea or not, but I'll tell a lot of people about it. So I'll tell more friends and the more people start, uh, you know, talking about it, asking me about it because people get interested about it, then it becomes a thing. And then now there's like too much. <laughs> it's like social suicide. If you if I tell everyone, hey, I'm going to go teach to South Korea uh, on January 1st and on January 2nd, I'm still in Chicago. That is social suicide. I would hate to tell them like, no, I, I chickened out. So I think kind of adding the kind of realizing how your mind works and adding that pressure. I do the same thing with the marathon. When I sign up for it, I'll tell everyone about it. Um, and then it adds pressure to me that kind of like, hey, this kind of keeps me accountable to make sure that I do what I what I was set out to do. You know, were you able to do it under five hours? <laughs> yeah, I was. Okay. I was. I just got it right around four hours. Um, oh, but awesome. I think mile twenty two to twenty six, I was just a floating ghost. Uh, you I was were just like I was dead. Uh, no, I was. I was. I would call it the lightest jog possible, one foot <laughs> after another. <laughs> exactly. My, one of my, I think it was my first marathon. I ran, and then I remember at mile twenty two or something like that, a woman. I swear she was probably like sixty five. She started running past me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like 30 years old. I was like, okay, this is humiliating. <laughs> yeah. But it, the, the marathon is such a great experience. I was just here in Chicago. It was about 50,000 runners. And, you know, you had all the street, the, the streets are just filled with people and you go through all these cool neighbors. It's such a, it's such a great energy. And uh, it's one way I also have uh, recently started to travel um, throughout uh, the world as well as using these endurance races. So last year, one of my favorite races I did was the uh, Authentic. Athens Authentic Marathon, um, and that race is from the city of Marathon, Greece, to uh, Athens, and that was also a lot of fun. I actually dressed up as a Spartan warrior with a huge mask and the cape, um, and it's just it's just a great way to experience the culture um, and get the a vibe of the people. The people are all out there cheering you on. Um, you know, I got a chance to go visit the Parthenon and, and do all the things in Athens the day before. So it's, it's a really cool way to kind of give some purpose behind your travels when you start doing these five, 10 Ks, half marathons, marathons, in different cities. I think it's a phenomenal way to, to travel and see the world. So I interrupted you. You were going to say, make a second point. I don't know if you still remember it. Yeah. The second one, uh, I, I, cause I think fear is the biggest thing that's holding people back, you know, and, and I see this with friends here. Ooh, I'm actually just back in Chicago and they have never left. And they always ask me, you know, what's, you know, they're always so interested in what I did. And I just know the difference between me and them was that I, 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 I was able to push past that fear and, you know, kind of throw myself in the deep end. Um, but the second thing is, is like fear setting, right? So I remember when I was leaving for Korea, it's another thing I did as well was I kind of told myself, what's the worst thing that can happen, you know? And the worst thing that could have happened is I went to Korea. The Koreans hate me. They despise me. They throw tomatoes at me. Uh, you know, the food sucks. It's cold. It's miserable. Uh, and then the worst thing happens in one week, I go home and say, well, that was clearly not a good idea. You know, nothing happens. Um, but usually what ends up happening is people realize, wow, that, you know, there was some reason why I wanted to do this and it ends up being 10 X as great as you thought it would be, you know, Korea for me was such a phenomenal experience to try a, a whole new cuisine, the culture. I just loved how collective it was, you know, just going to order food. Uh, for me, it, it was just so cool that, you know, we, when we go out to eat, we don't just say, Hey, I want a Big Mac or, and I have fries and it just comes from me. We, we order as a group and we eat together. And I just, I really love the community aspect of, of South Korea. How long were you there total? I was there three and a half years. 
Okay, wow. So then tell us something about South Korean culture that is, was not entirely obvious when you first moved there, that it took you maybe months to learn. It wasn't obvious. Um, like, so, for example, one thing is, you know, mm -hmm. this collective ordering at a restaurant. That's one thing that's kind of interesting uh, that, you know, it's not mm -hmm. like we look at, I want this, you want that, you know, like you order as a team. Um, so that's one interesting thing. But could you have seen, I don't know what year you were there, but, you know, like all of a sudden K-pop just has taken off and all sorts of other South Korean, you know, mega hits that they've really dominated the culture recently. Could you see that coming? And, and why is it taking off, for example? That's a great question. You know, when I was there, I talked about this with other people that you can feel the energy there. And at that time, still no one really knew about Korea. K-pop wasn't a thing. K-beauty wasn't a thing. Uh, Korean movies like Parasite weren't a thing. Like Korea really wasn't on the map other than uh, Gangnam Style with Psy. Uh, and Samsung and LG, yeah, and all these things. But Hyundai. still, people would, I think if you ask the typical American, they probably wouldn't even know that Samsung or uh, Hyundai are Korean. They're just like, oh, it's somewhere Asian. Um, but uh, from my understanding is the Korean government had put aside a percentage of their GDP to invest in Korean products as a cultural um, export. So uh, because Korea is landlocked, they don't have a lot of resources. They put a lot of money into their education. Um, and then they also Wait, wanted on, to start. Ex South, <laughs> Korea is, South Korea is not landlocked. Sorry, not landlocked. I, I apologize. A peninsula. Sorry, I apologize. Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. Is a peninsula. Uh, they well, don't have a lot of uh, resources. That you didn't know where it was, so I'm just trying to <laughs> confirm that. Was was I even there? Was I even there? <laughs> it's between Kyrgyzstan and China, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And you were saying to yourself, like this, this water all around me must be fake. <laughs> yeah. They're so good at that. Um, but from, from what I understood is that they put a lot of uh, their money into uh, st wanting to invest in Korea and col Korean culture as an export product. Um, so, you know, what happened in the last 10 years is, you know, K-pop became super popular. I mean, people all around the world, I mean, middle schoolers, everyone listens to BTS and all these different bands. Back then, like there was just K-pop was just popular in Korea. It was like people would laugh at, at, at K-pop and now it's like a thing. Uh, K-beauty, you know, the, the beauty scene in Korea is really, really important. They have a lot of plastic surgery, but their cosmetics are really, really good. Um, and that's like in so many different pharmacies and, and beauty shops around the world. We have, of course, uh, Korean movies, Parasite and all these different movies that have become popular. Korean um, TV series. Uh, what was that? That was, uh, uh, was the one that was super popular. Uh, not Death Squad. What's it called? Uh, oh, my gosh. No. Squid Games, that's it. My gosh, it's so cool to watch just to see Korea in the background. Um, and it's kind of cool how this small country, I mean, Korea is pretty small, uh, has become such a huge influence throughout the entire world. I was listening so. to this other, I was reading an article about how the demographics of Korea is really going to shrink because they have 1.2 children per female, the fertility rate. And China's even less than that, something like that. And so I just wonder, like, here they are, K-pop, they are the it's the youth that's driving a lot of this revolution but their youth mm -hmm. is going to disappear or vanish i mean not completely obviously but it's going to be much smaller i wonder if they're going to be able to sustain that level of creativity when they are going to have half as many young people in just a generation yeah uh, the the birth rate is really, really low in korea and japan um and i think it has a lot to do with the the 
living situation in Korea. I mean, people are working really, really hard over there. Uh, education is really expensive. One of the things they value a lot in Korea is is education. So the, these parents put all this money into private education for the kids. They're just working all day long. Um, and so the, the people, young kids, they start thinking about having children. They're like, well, why would I want to put myself into a situation where, you know, I have to work all the time for these kids. And so, uh, that's one factor. I think another factor is that people worry about their careers, especially women who are in the business, um, uh, industry that, you know, pe- there's like employers that are asking, you know, when you plan to have children, do you have a boyfriend, something like that, which isn't very common in the U S I think it's actually illegal, but there I, I was working with business students who told me that, that that's a question that they, they face. Um, but to also answer your question that you asked earlier, one thing I learned, uh, that, that I didn't understand was how hard they worked. Uh, I remember getting there and I would ride the, the, the subways and people would just kind of look like, like lifeless in their eyes coming home at 10 o'clock because I'd be working pretty late as well. Students that were 11, 12 years old in my class were falling asleep. And I was like, why are they sleeping? Like, it's, it's so, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's disrespectful. You should be sleeping in class. And I realized they're just studying all night. You know, they, they go, these students from go to school from like eight to four or eight to three thirty. Then they go to their, uh, the private school. So it's like, it's called the Hagwon. So from four to seven, they go to the first Hagwon. So they're learning stuff for next year. So they're learning math for next year, or science for next year, or they're learning English, Japanese or guitar or whatever. Then from seven to 10, they go to their second one. Uh, and then they come home, they have homework from their normal school, from their private academies that they're doing till, till you know, late at night. And then in the morning they go back to school, do it again. So I think seeing how hard they work, um, was to me probably one of the biggest kind of eye openers. And what happens when you live in an environment, you end up kind of adapting to it as well. I remember I was working like two or three jobs uh, was well when I was in Korea, just constantly just teaching, constantly working and doing different side gigs. And uh, yeah, it's it's crazy how that kind of the, the, your environment influences you, and you end up just being like like just just like work everyone else. So. Yeah, I mean, Ghana should be listening to this very carefully because in 1950s, Ghana's GDP per capita was equal to South Korea. And today, mm-hmm. South Korea is eight or nine times greater on a GDP per capita than Ghana. I mean, they just totally blew them away. And why? Look at what you just described. You just you just gave mm-hmm. the answer. I mean, they're just working their asses off far more mm-hmm. than any other country, probably. And it's yeah. they're, they're reaping the benefits of that investment in their brains and in their uh, their infrastructure and everything they've done. Of course, there's probably a price to pay for that, all that stuff. Now, tell me this, is is is, are, is there a sexist society? Does it still exist there that women are pretty much subservient to men still, or is that changing? You know what? I haven't been there in a while. Uh, I haven't been there in almost seven years, but I used to work with business students and uh, he- hearing about some of the practices they have, uh, like, for example, putting pictures on, you know, your resume, you know, how you know managers are kind of hiring people. Uh, you know, workers based on their looks. I, I was dating actually a girl who was trying to be, this is actually kind of interesting. At the time, um, I was dating this girl and she told me that at the time in Korea, the hottest job for a female was to be a flight attendant. Like they really, really wanted it to be it. And so she went to this uh, flight attendant, like private academy, and they would tell her like, change your hair color a little bit darker brown. Now change it black. And they just kind of kept like, you know, this appearance thing, it must be really difficult for them based on, on how their look uh, to get a job. 
Uh, the other thing I was talking about earlier was I had a couple of business students as well who told me, you know, when they're when they're looking for jobs, you know, the the, the, the employers are asking, you know, do you have a boyfriend? Are you going to have? Do you plan to have children anytime soon? So you know, those are kind of policies that seem a little bit uh, unfair compared compared to males. But it does seem when I was there that it was kind of yeah more of a male dominated um, society, uh, at least in the traditional sense. You know, the younger younger kids, you know, they had a chance to kind of go study abroad, uh, just go see the world. But the, the traditional sense was kind of yeah a, a strong male dominated society what was different dating a korean woman versus let's say an american for example <laughs> the story is actually funny i um i met this girl while i was hiking we both got lost and uh next thing i knew we were kind of hanging out and i invited her to her to this wedding um had a couple many two drinks too many drinks that night and uh she's like do you want to be my boyfriend i was like of course i want to be your boyfriend that sounds fantastic she's like you're not going to forget about it i'm like of course i'm not going to <laughs> and uh the next morning she messaged me she's like good morning boyfriend i hope you didn't forget um <laughs> so i was like whoa that was quick um but i think uh, the difference was um Korea society, at least when I was there, is very couple oriented. So it's like when you go to the movie theater, they have like popcorn sets for couples. When you go to the baseball game, you go in couples, you wear the same outfit. Like it's such a it's such a couple oriented society. Uh, it's, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of like if you're by yourself, like something kind of like like off, you know, you should, you're always everything's based on being together and being in couples. And so they really like to spend time together. Uh, I would say it's more intense than kind of the independence and freedom that we have in the U.S. of kind of having like your own space uh, compared to them. Does that break down once they get married or do they stay very tight couples? Uh, I think it stays uh, at least the the, the 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 friends that I know that they have is the they, they definitely still spend a lot of time together. Um, yeah, it's a little bit different. I think you lose the, they lose the, the honeymoon phase where they're excited to see each other, but still. I don't know how they do it when they're all working so hard. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe they have, they're kind of all at work uh, during the daytime. Um, so, yeah, I tell have no idea other, either. Tell me some mm -hmm. other surprising lessons that you learned from podcasting and interviewing all these adventurers. Things that you kind of like, hmm, didn't think about that. Yeah, so the fear was one thing. Um, the other thing I I really like is that people just kind of get ideas from like out of nowhere. I had uh, I had a a person who ended up uh, his name's Captain Boogie. He ended up cycling from in Northern Scotland or Ireland, somewhere in the North UK, all the way to South Africa. It was a 13 month journey. Um, and it kind of came from one of his friends that had passed away and he realized, you know, time was just passing away and that he, this was something he wanted to do. And so that kind of was the catalyst for him to take this thir 13 month cycling trip. Uh, and one thing I actually personally, I, I did all these podcast interviews and I was like kind of living through these people and their journeys, you know? Uh, and so I decided this summer that, you know, I also I've always wanted to do a cycling trip. So why, why, why would I do one? You know, why am I not the person doing this? And so this summer I also did a trip across Poland, um, about 1200 kilometers, took me about 16 days. And it was fantastic. Like it was everything I heard in the podcast about how perception just changes. You become so present. You just wake up, drink coffee, and you're just cycling and you're meeting people. It's it's a different way of traveling that I've really, really come to enjoy this summer by doing a cycling trip. And I want to do more in the future. 
um, because it just makes you feel more present. You know, you're just kind of just seeing the sights, you're feeling everything. You know, the weather is you're in tune with the weather because if it's raining, you know, everything's kind of uh, disrupts. Um, so that was kind of one thing as well as I, I my, my, me personally, I took away is that, Hey, I shouldn't just be listening to these stories. I should actually also be doing these things as well. Um, personally, were you uh, there other during people, the mm-hmm. Ukraine war? Yeah, actually it's actually, it was an interesting time. Um, now cycling was interesting because there's a lot of tension between, uh, how's it saying in English? Is it Belarus? Belarus. Uh, and Poland. Um, so there's like this hybrid warfare going on, I guess, where there's a lot of migrants being uh, sent from Belarus to Poland. And so that whole that whole border now is filled with uh, border control by the U.S. Uh, sorry, by Poland. And they also have their own. Um, uh, they built a wall there as well. So uh, I didn't know it, but you needed a passport within 15 kilom- 50 kilometers of the border just so they can make sure that there's you're, you're not a migrant, that you're, you're supposed to be in Poland. Um, and I also roughed it. So I was like sleeping in the woods on a hammock. So I just took a hammock and that's all I was sleeping on. Um, and so it was, a, it was a really interesting experience uh, being out in the wild as well. I actually have a funny story. There was I think the sixth night day I was, I was, it was raining outside and it was, it was cold and I had just done 90 kilometers and I was like, maybe I'll just get a, like a, like a, like an Airbnb for the night. And, uh, it's like eight o'clock. The sun has just set and I find I'm in a small little town, uh, in Missouri and lakes is where this region is called in Poland. There's a ton of lakes, kind of a little bit like Minnesota. It's really, really beautiful. And this lady comes out and um for this for this for this pension is airbnb and she's beautiful she's gotta be like in her late 20s blonde hair got this little white dog in her hand and there's these cool like glass windows behind her with candles she's like oh you're in luck like i had 11 people that were supposed to reserve for today but they just canceled we have a hot shower we have a huge queen size bed no no, no. the better story (laughs) would be like we're we're full but there's space in my bed (laughs) yeah Well, that's where I thought this story was going. I'm like, oh, no, no one's there, huh? It's just us. <laughs> and so she's like, she's like, yeah, like, so we have a spot for you. And I was like, oh, but you know, I was the whole point of this trip was I really wanted to kind of just really live like a minimalist lifestyle, just in a hammock, find two trees, and just do that. She's like, so you're gonna go rough it, or are you gonna stay here? And I like, like looked her in the this, eyes, this and is like I dumb said, and dumber. I know, and I said. I'm gonna go rough it, <laughs> and I went down by the river. <laughs> okay. So you know the you know the scene at the end of Dumb and Dumber. Do you remember that? No, I don't. What was the okay. scene? The, there's this, these guys are just walking in the middle of nowhere. The two idiots, the two Dumb and Dumbers, right? Mm. And then this bus pulls up, and uh, and these girls in bikinis come up, and they're oh, full, yeah. it's a full of them, and they're like, "Hey, do you want a ride?" And they're like, "Oh, don't worry about us. We'll be fine." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they're, they're basic- looking for like the sw- swimsuit convention or something like something that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's basically that's lit- <laughs> That was me. Yeah. She's like, oh my gosh, I have a warm meal. My like, you know, I'm just all alone in this house. I have a jacuzzi. And I'm like, no, I'm going to go sleep by the river where it's raining. And then in the morning I woke up and some homeless man was asking me for money. And I look at him and I'm like, dude, we're in the same boat, bro. Like I'm sleeping outside here as well. <laughs> you know, I just turned down this beautiful, uh, uh, this Blonde beautiful Airbnb. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so tell me about hammock versus tent. You've probably done both. 
Oh, now that you've experienced man. both, tell tell me your, your oh. takeaways. See, now I'm now I'm qualified to tell you about it because a month ago for the trip, I would say, oh. so this was a huge dilemma I had before, and I was going to bring both. Uh, but the thing is, the tent weighs more; it's pretty heavy. So I actually also took a like a. Um, like a cycling bike. So it wasn't like one of those mountain bikes. I just took a cycling bike. Uh, and then when I put everything on, this is the thing that's kind of crazy when I do these things. So like I did the same thing I was just telling you earlier. I said, hey, I'm going to ride across Poland. Sounded cool. I told people, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I'm like, well, now I got to do it. And then I like start putting every, all, all my supplies on my bike. And I'm like, this is nuts. What am I doing? Um, and my bike was so heavy. Like it was just like a leaning tower of Pisa just kept wanting to fall over. So I tried, I did a test run and I was like, everything's falling off. So I had to like eliminate half the things I had. Uh, so it was just basically just uh, warm jacket, warm pants, uh, a couple of like uh, protein bars and then a hammock. It was really, really simple. Um, and so that's kind of why I brought the hammock. I love the hammock because it's super simple that you can set up anywhere as long as you have like two trees or I also found playgrounds is where I would set up as well. Um, so I really, really like that. The only downside of the hammock, uh, is the rain. So if you can set up a good tarp system, that would be good. But for me, my tarp system, I ordered it and it was, I guess, a little bit too short. So I remember once in the morning, it started raining the first time and uh, it was raining and I was getting wet. But I was so tired that I was like just pretending like I'm not wet and just cocooning <laughs> deeper into the sleeping bag. <laughs> um, so so I, I like the hammock. I, I think it's one of my favorite ways uh, to I mean, if you set up a hammock on the, if you have lakes, oh, my gosh, or anything with a nice view, it's, you can't wake up to a better, better thing. The other downside of the hammock, though, is that people would see it and they would think that they didn't think someone was inside of it. And so they would want to jump inside. So this happened the first night. So the first night I'm like riding. I finished by this uh, lake region. I find it. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. It's getting dark, but I'm tired and I need to go to sleep. And I'm like, there's people in this kind of near this lake region. And so I'm like, hey, I'm just going to set up this hammock. Uh, I just have to act like I've done it before because otherwise I'll look like a clown. So I just set it up. And uh, people are still walking because it's kind of like a party lake, I guess you would say. And at 2 a.m., I wake up and there's this guy looking inside of it. And he's like, holy shit, someone's in here. (laughs) (laughs) And it's these two drunk guys and they wanted to hop in it because uh, it had a nice view of the lake. So this was a thing I learned was that this happened all the time is that people didn't realize that it was empty and people would come up to it or want to sit in it. That it was not empty. And it was, it was me inside of it. (laughs) Which is funny if the, if the, the person wants to jump in is that blonde girl that you saw. yeah she should have came down with me she said hey screw the bed i'll go rough it with you i'm like oh fantastic yeah, but what so about, so mosquitoes mm-hmm. yeah so the 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 hammock has a uh, has a mosquito net so you hop in and you just put the mosquito uh net over and you have no bugs it's perfect and if you okay. do it nice and taut uh it's super comfortable like i i thought i was gonna have like back issues but i felt it was a, such a nice sleep i really really liked it so what about um, so i highly recommend it but what about the tarp? You said so you got to put a tarp over it to catch, you know, to, to protect you against the rain. What could you have done differently? Got a big, bigger tarp? Yeah, I think I would have got a bigger tarp. I would have practiced a little bit because when it started raining, I was half tired. I didn't even set it up properly. But basically, you can put up a line over the hammock and then kind of put the tarp over, kind of like a little like a little teepee. Um, I got I got the 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 tarp just as long as my body was. But then it kind of the, the 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 hammock stretches out, so the water would kind of still pour in. So that was kind of the mistake I made. Uh, should have got a, definitely a bigger tarp. 
Uh, but highly recommend the hammock, man. It's just such a great way. It's so light. I mean, they're like this small. So all you need. Oh, the other thing I had was a sleeping bag as well. So sleeping bag, hammock, and you can you can actually sleep anywhere. Actually, I I got inspired by this from our podcast together because you were telling me how you had you you started sleeping in tents, just like in cities, and you said why not. And then I was, it's kind of interesting how that became such a paradigm shift in my head. Cause I always think, oh, I'm going to city. I have to get an Airbnb or I have to get a booking or I have to get to this. All of a sudden when you have a, you can just sleep anywhere and no one's going to charge you anything for it. And you can find I get the best spots ever in top of mountains or lakes. It's like, it just changes the whole game. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have to thank you for that as well, because sure. now it just kind of I'm like, yeah, I can go anywhere I want. Like, why? Why would I hold myself back or I have to plan in advance of like, oh, oh, this is booked or not booked, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know that it, it it's like a security blanket. Like you just know that if all else fails, you know you've got a, you've got shelter. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it's just nice to to have, and it's, you can just pack into a backpack and go anywhere. I think that's that's phenomenal. Yeah. Um. So so I really like that. Yeah. What is your next adventure that you're planning? So uh, I just did the, 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 the cycling trip, which was great. I really would like to do another cycling trip, a longer one uh, throughout Europe. Uh, I think hitting up Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, I think when it gets nice outside, that would be a phenomenal uh, way to see, see, the, see, the, see the, um, those countries. This is another um, so, common theme mm-hmm. that you probably picked up from your adventurers that you do a little adventure, you come back and you're like, holy shit, I'm still alive. I can do that mm. again. And you just up the ante every single time. Yeah, exactly. I think once you get a taste of it, uh, like I guess they call it like the travel bug, you just want more and more of it. And I'm always kind of, I think, telling myself, oh, I'm going to settle down, settle down. And if I, like every time I come back, I'm like, no, I just want more. And uh, yeah, it just gets more and more, you know, different experiences, different places, different, uh, you know, levels of growth, things I want to do. Um, so that's one thing also in a theme I, I realize as well is that people get a taste of it and then they'll do something bigger. Um uh, when, when, when they come home. And also you also, I, I think that's really cool. That I realized from my pod, podcast, uh, guests is that there's like a paradigm shift. Like when you come back to your home, you realize you're like, you're like a completely different person, you know, like you, you realize your, your, your mind's been expanded. The experiences have just like kind of put you in a different realm. The people you've met, it's kind of hard to describe. Like every time I come back home, I think I've like, I've been in a movie, you know, I was like, oh, that movie that just happened in Korea or that movie that just happened in Poland. Cause it's so hard to even describe to people. Um, but you, you, you come with a different kind of thinking, a uh, different kind of worldview uh, that I think is, is really, really, really cool. Uh, and you have, and you usually are really grateful that, you know, you went on this journey and it's, it's very rare that I hear people uh, have, you know, regret that they did it. It's usually like, Hey, 99% of times like, dude, that was, I can't believe I didn't do that earlier. You know? Exactly. No, it's so true. What about, uh, tell us about your scuba diving experience and what could you, what could you learn from that? Yeah, scuba diving is fantastic. Um, so I was when I first dart, started this whole journey. I was gonna start off in Australia. I was gonna, I was actually gonna go to a wedding there because I had these friends with these Australians who were here in Chicago, and they said, "Oh, I might. You gotta come to Australia." And at that time, I was a broke college student, and so I said, "Hey, I'll come for your wedding." Um, and so we spent, uh, we, we stayed in contact over the years and uh, one day they call me like, Hey mate, I'm getting married. You promised you'd come. <laughs> so I, uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. Let's do it. Um, and so I flew out there and before I did, I knew that the Great Barrier Reef was there and I really wanted to scuba dive it. So I took a course here in Chicago, uh, which was a, a 
there's a great, great first lesson. Uh, terrible mistake. <laughs> if you can, go do it somewhere warm, somewhere beautiful. You get the full experience like in Koh Tao, Thailand, uh, Honduras, any of these places that are tropical. You get the full experience of being there, learning. You have the ocean right there. Like It's just such a much better way to and uh, to learn and get a great experience the course i think is usually around four days if you do intensive course uh three and a half four days um but i did it here it was three weeks man i was like training at the ymca i did my open water dives in the in the uh, joliet rock quarry it was dark it was cold it was miserable i hated it i was like this sucks <laughs> and then i went diving in the great barrier reef and i was like okay now i understand why uh why people love this the colors the sharks the marine animals it was fantastic and so what i would do is each uh, year I did another course. So the next year I did my advanced course in Bali. Um, and then the year after that, I did my dive master course in Koh Tao. And then I, of course, eventually became an instructor. Um, so the first thing I would say is if you're going to do diving, uh, I recommend uh, doing it like a full course somewhere tropical uh, as opposed to these colder countries because you're just going to you're, you're gonna enjoy it more. You might, you're going to get, you're going to see how amazing it, it is. It might be cheaper too. Uh, yeah, it's going to be cheaper uh, definitely as well because these are kind of like little factories, especially like in Koh Tao. They have like 60-plus dive shops. Uh, the whole schedule is kind of split. They've, they've optimized everything to make sure that your experience is incredible. Um, and so I was a little bit jealous of my – I'm always jealous of my students in, in Thailand. I'm like, I wish I learned diving this way, you know, uh, as opposed in muddy rock quarries. Uh, the second thing is if you get hooked on diving – I don't think there is a much better experience than doing a dive master course. So I actually had a podcast uh, episode on this is how to get into your dive master, dive master one-on-one with this instructor, Maddie Barks. And uh, I think it's, if you like diving, uh, it's just, you get so immersed to it in it. So it, it depends on where you do yours, but it usually lasts between a month and two months. And, and it's important to pick the right dive shop and the di- right dive um location where you want to do it uh because it's going to depend on you know if you want to work there you would want to start making contacts and networking with those dive shops there but basically what you're doing is you are learning intensively the theory of diving you're learning intensively the marine animals that are there you're diving almost every single day and so you are experiencing every kind of situation that can happen to you whether it is currents whether it is terrible visibility whether it's storms whether it's huge waves whether it's like losing someone running out of air uh, customers running out of air you kind of go through this whole gambit of different experiences that can happen to you while diving so when you finish it uh, you are basically, you've experienced almost every kind of situation, or let's say most of the situations that can happen in diving. And you feel extremely comfortable after that diving. Um, and then after that is the instructors, but the instructor uh, certification is about two weeks. Um, and it's kind of more learning about the teaching uh, aspect of it as opposed to actually learning diving. So if you like diving, the dive master is, I, I recommend to take a one or two months out of your life and just 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 immerse yourself. Waking up, you know, at sunrise, going diving, then learning about diving, then going out with your dive master trainees to for for food, for drinks. There's also a lot of fun traditions. Have you heard of any of these traditions, like uh, the hundredth dive? No. Oh, so when you have your hundredth dive, so I ended on my hundredth dive because I wanted to take part in this. Your hundredth dive is your naked dive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes you might be diving and you're looking and all of a sudden you just see this 
naked person. Naked dude with his dong out. And you're like, oh, that's not what I wanted. That is not what I wanted to see at 7 a.m. Um, but then other times it's that blonde girl from Poland who swims by. Oh, yeah. That's when, you're, that's when you're like, hey, let's go this way. Let's go that way. And, you know, things look bigger in the water, too. So. Exactly, of course. Yeah. Um, but my 100 dive... Yeah, my 100 dive was a lot of fun. So it was my last dive and before I had to leave Thailand. And I, I joined on to this group and I asked them, I said, hey, do you guys mind if I join on? I have to do my 100 dive, uh, but it's going to be naked. And they're like, ah, oh, it's fine. Just stay in the back. <laughs> so, I get, so I get naked. I put my BCD on and, my, and everything. And the captain of the boat comes out. He's just looking and he's just shocked and he just goes back inside. Um, but it was actually also a night dive. And then I, I jumped into the water and I'm behind the, the whole group there. And then I start, my mind starts wandering and I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of like groupers and big fish here. What if they accidentally mistaken <laughs> my pecker for a little fish? <laughs> and then and then they take it off. And then all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a funny 100 dive turns into, you know, no, no more procreation. <laughs> exactly, right, right, right. <laughs> so that's awesome. that that that's one of the traditions I really liked about the dive master. Uh, another one is the snorkel party. So basically, when you finish your dive master, um, each dive shop does a different tradition, but it's a huge thing. You you just spent a month or two months studying for this thing, and it's kind of like initiation, rite of passage to be, becoming a dive master. Um, and so you have different games like guess the fish and blah, blah, blah. But the final thing is they, they do is they put a snorkel on you. So they have a mask on, they have duct tape over the, 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 the lens. And so they have like a, uh, nickname for you. Mine was Kim Jung Jordan. Cause I was living in Korea at the time. Um, and then they have a snorkel with a little like uh, attached, say mini bucket to it. And what they do is the bartender will, uh, make the craziest concoction he can think of. So it might be tequila, rum, hot sauce, sliced peaches, whatever it is he can find back there. They put it into a bucket, uh, and then you're, official ending for your dive master is they, they pour this bucket into your snorkel and you can't breathe out of your nose because it's covered with the with the mask so the only way to breathe is either to drink it all or spew it up and so uh that's kind of a, a way that you you end the uh your dive master there's usually a theme to it as well you all dress up in different kind of clothes so i really i love divers and the dive community are just really creative they just love being in nature they love being together uh it's just a really great uh great community to be a part of. I really enjoyed that, that experience. Yeah. I appreciate all the insights cause I didn't know much about it. Now for my final question, this is going to be totally changed topics. We're not going to mm. talk about travel here and, and you can take the, you can plead the fifth on this one because it's, it's off topic. But since you lived in South Korea and you basically spent a lot of time in Poland, I want you to look on the other side of the border. So look at Ukraine mm. and the situation in Ukraine and mm -hmm. look at the situation in North Korea. Are any of those, do you foresee any of those places changing dramatically? And, and, and how, do, how do you see their future? Is North Korea always going to be the hermit kingdom? Is, is the Ukraine war, how's that going to end? I realize this is totally off topic and maybe not your, but you, you might have spent some time thinking about this. So what's your two cents on well, those two issues? The first thing I thought of is how did I always end up in these conflict zones? <laughs> I recently, <laughs> I recently started thinking I might be a bad 
bad luck omen wherever I go. I mean, I moved to South Korea in 2013, and within months, uh, it was one of the highest tensions between North Korea and South Korea. Just after I moved there, uh, Kim Jong-un at that time said he was going to turn Seoul into a a city of fire or something like that. And I mean, it was all over the headlines. CNN was saying it's World War III is coming. My family was like, hey, uh, if you want to go live abroad, travel abroad, just go somewhere else. Go to Spain. Go somewhere safer. Don't be in South Korea. And I remember freaking out. Um, And I remember I woke up the next day. And it was eerily quiet in my apartment. And usually, uh, it's loud. I'm in the middle. Of, I was living in Gangnam in, in Seoul. I mean, there's always traffic. It was eerily quiet. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Did a bomb go off? Am I the only one surviving? You know, it was a crazy thought. You know, you could go to bed and you have no idea if you're going to get nuked or not. Uh, and so, I, I, it was my first time going through this kind of experience. I mean, you don't go through that in Chicago. I mean, unless you're walking the sh- sh- streets of Southside, but you're not going to, you know, worry about getting bombed. And so, I go the next day to my students and I'm like, yo, why are you guys still studying? Why are you guys so excited studying? Aren't you guys freaking out? <laughs> this, this all might be disappearing soon. And they're like, ah, teacher, that guy's like our crazy old uncle. He's always saying that. He's just rattling the storm. He's not going to do anything. Um, so it kind of made me calm down and realize that the Koreans are kind of used to that. They don't really listen to what he says anymore. Um, and it was actually, I actually ended up going to the DMZ at that time, which was pretty cool too, the demilitarized zone. Um, because no one wanted to go there at, at during that tension. And so I was like, oh, there's no wait. I might as well go check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that. My experience then in, uh, in, Poland during the Ukraine war was it was also kind of surreal. I remember I was in class in the morning and someone whispered. I didn't check my phone that morning. Actually, I was running late and someone whispered in my ear saying uh, one of the teachers like, hey, you know, because of the, what happened with the invasion, uh, you know, we're going to not do this and that. And I remember like, what? What invasion? And that's when I found out that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I remember it just completely like shocked me. Like, how could that have happened? Like, no one thought that was going to happen you know, for real. I mean, they're talking about a couple of weeks before. I think Biden was saying it's going to happen, but no one really thought it was going to happen in this day and age. And I remember being kind of like shocked. And I remember just being like, what's going on? But out of probably the most uplifting and positive thing I experienced was the reaction that the polls had in that situation following that. Um, it kind of felt a little bit like post 9-11 in the U.S. Uh, people kind of put politics aside. Uh, there was kind of like, no, hey, should we do this? Should we not do this? Everyone was helping out however they could. Uh, I know people who were opening up their homes. A lot of people who took in refugees, people who were vets were going down to rescue the animals. People, we were running school uh, supplies to send down there. I was going to the train station to donate supplies. Every single person was helping out. Um, and I remember that was like, it was a really like uplifting, it was a terrible situation, of course, but it was uplifting to see how much the human spirit, uh, will come together in order to help people in, in terms of, of crisis and in need. Um, so those are kind of my experiences there. I don't react. I'm not an expert on this. Of course, in my personal opinion, I don't think the South Korea, North Korea, uh, situation is ever going to change. I think the way it is now is kind of like, in my personal opinion, I could be wrong, but it's kind of fits the status quo for everybody. Uh, China is satisfied because they have a border with South Korea, who is a huge ally of the U.S., so they're fine with North Korea being there. Uh, North Korea, of course, is satisfied having their dictatorship unless the people rebel, but I don't know if that's going to happen. South Korea um, you know, has huge uh, U.S. aid. Uh, there's tons of soldiers there as well, uh, so they have a huge alliance with the United States, and the United States gets to send a lot of their soldiers and have a foot in Asia. So it kind of seems like, as of now, it doesn't seem like 
there is a real huge motive for anyone to kind of you know rock the boat too much but i could be wrong i mean who knows nowadays it seems like you have no no idea what's going to happen mm-hmm. um the situation in ukraine uh I, I have a lot of friends who are ukrainian and i think the thing that's kind of gets sad is that you know after that situation I mean, the war's still going on there you know uh, and it kind of gets forgotten about as well people kind of go about their daily lives i understand you know you know you learn about it but that situation is still horrible that situation is still ongoing um, and I also don't understand, don't know, or know how that's going to end. I mean, I never even saw that happening in the first place. Um, so I, I have no, I have no idea, but the resilience, uh, the fight in the Ukrainians is, is really, really strong. So I, I can't see them, you know, backing down anytime soon because the, the people I've known, the people that I've met, the refugees or my friends, I mean, they, they're, they're like willing to die for this and the spirit for them to fight for this is like it's it's super important for them so i don't see them backing down any anytime soon while russia it just seems like it seems such a you know if you're a russian soldier and you're going to fight there i mean like what are you really fighting for you know so uh that's kind of my experiences with, with those two situations excellent well uh, thank you for all your insights jordan and tell people how they can listen to your podcast yeah so i run the travel tribe x podcast we're on spotify we're on apple Podcasts. we're also on youtube uh each week i find different kinds of adventures uh sometimes comedians different kind of people who are kind of trying to pursue something different uh see something different experience something different uh so yeah check us out there awesome jordan it's a pleasure i will put a link in the show notes thank you again thank you francis keep doing the great work man i love i love love your uh love your podcast thank you man